Welcome back to the podcast. In our last two episodes, we saw the journey of Acadia from a small settlement of a dozen or so Frenchmen through a civil war to being a colony stuck between two imperial powers. When in French hands, it was Acadia. When in English hands, it was Nova Scotia. Ultimately, our story ended in the 1660s, with much of the story left to be told in a future season. But now we move to the other side of New France. Outside of New France, actually. All the way to the Huron Confederacy. This is the term that the French records would use for them. They, however, called themselves the Wendat. Their relation to modern-day groups we'll discuss at a much later point. Now, throughout my episodes on New France and Season 1 about the Haudenosaunee Confederation, I've mentioned the Wendat so many times, the Huron Confederation, so many times, that I've realized I've developed an obsession for them. And so this episode will expunge all of that obsession and connect very nicely to our main story on New France. Now, the Wendat, or the Huron, were an Iroquoian people. They're very closely related to those in the Iroquois Confederation, but also to a bunch of other groups around them who are all Iroquoian-speaking people, but not in the Iroquois Confederacy. That's something that we have to get into our heads, especially in the 17th century. Most Iroquoian people, at least at the beginning of the 17th century, were not in the Iroquois Confederacy. And in fact, at the very beginning of that century, it would appear as if the Huron Confederacy was the larger of the two. And so just to broaden your scope, in case you didn't listen to season one, Iroquois-speaking people, Iroquoian-speaking people, uh, ranged all the way up from the St. Lawrence, the St. Lawrence Iroquois, the Haudenosaunee, of course, the five nations of the Iroquois, the Tuscarora, far to the south, who would join later, the Cherokee speak a very distant Iroquois language, the Susquehanna, the Huron, who I've mentioned, who are several tribes in a uh, confederacy, the neutral people, the Erie people, the Cat people, and probably a dozen other smaller tribes who we barely have any note of. The cultural linguistic group of Iroquoian people was much larger than the Iroquois Five Nations. Most of our information on the Huron during this time period comes from the Jesuit relations, which was put together, of course, by the Jesuits in order to drum up support for their conversion efforts in the New World. From these accounts, we can see that the Huron were culturally very, very similar to what we know about the uh, people of the Iroquois Confederation. They had clan systems and tribal systems that intersected one another, existing in a confederacy, involving chiefs, peace chiefs, and war chiefs. Their religion, the stories about their past, the past of their people, very similar. They have stories of sky people, a woman falling from the sky, landing on a large turtle, stories of dueling twins that came after that point in time, stone giants, a lot of their beliefs on witches and spirits, very similar, if not identical. The games they played, identical. Many of the Algonquian people would refer to the Huron as the good Iroquois. <laughs> and the French noticed that the Huron and the Iroquois were of the same stock. That's the term they used. This was a little bit before they started throwing around that term race, right? And way before they had any notion of linguistic groups, but they were of the same stock. Many anthropologists and historians believe that the Huron women actually had more power in their community than even the Iroquois women in the Iroquois Confederation, partially because their agriculture was so much more extensive than the already extensive farm fields of the Iroquois Confederation. Specifically, the Huron uh, created so much corn that they were able to feed the northern Algonquian people who they traded with for that corn. These group of Algonquian people would live right on the edge of of what would be considered farmable land at the time. They were hunters and gatherers, but they weren't 
much for farming, just because their climate did not dictate that much. Of course, the Algonquian people spread all the way down to the American South today. We're not talking about those branches. And so the women were quite powerful within the villages and the clans that they controlled. The Jesuits often saw the women as having loose morals. But uh, by the modern perspective, the Huron women had control over their own bodies. They were masters of their own domain. They could do as they wished with any part of them that they wished to do it with. Their bodies were not owned or controlled by husbands or fathers. The men and the women would paint their faces at times. They would tattoo their bodies. They would grease their hair. Now, the Iroquois Confederation, the people within that confederation, would do the same thing. It was often a way to keep out lice and fleas and other little critters you don't want on you. Europeans, of course, would go through a phase of just shaving everything and wearing wigs. Huron women would wear their hair in a single braid. Men were more varied and creative in their hairstyles. There seemed to have been uh, more allowance for expression among men's hair than women's, which would kind of be the reverse of what we see today in our culture. Men tend to have less choices. Women tend to have more freedom of what to do with their hair. Returning from the warpath, the men would tend to bring women and children for adoption and men for torturing. This is pretty consistent among all Native groups in the Northeast portion of the United States and in Eastern Canada. Torturing these male captives would turn into a high art and was especially looked forward to by the females in the community. We find this is true among the Iroquois Confederacy, among the Innu women. Women are just very good at torturing, especially men. I'm not going to expound on that any further. The Huron had their medicine men and their shamans who would commune with spirits in order to divine the future or find cures for illnesses. According to Bruce Trigger, the Hurons had three types of illnesses. They classified their sicknesses into three categories. Natural, which could be cured by diet, sweating, incisions, herbs, a natural ailment, a natural solution. Second category would be illness caused by unfulfilled desires. Now the Iroquois, the Huron, the Iroquoian people, and even the Algonquian people, uh, many of them believe that dreams were either a communion with the spirit world or a vision of unfulfilled desires that you have buried deep inside of you. I don't think Sigmund Freud would disagree with that. And the Huron believe that these unfulfilled desires could actually manifest into a physical ailment. And the third category of disease was far more sinister, and that was a disease caused by witchcraft. Of course, the Huron had different words for it. But Native Americans generally, in this part of North America, believed in what we would call today witches, male and female witches. These would be people who would commune with what was perceived as dark or evil spirits and would do harmful things to others uh, by using the power of those spirits. Of course, the Huron were animists. They believed that there were spirits in everything. The world was a living, fluctuating, uh, communicative thing where everything had deep down inside it, basically a soul by a, a Western concept. And in some cases, you could communicate directly with these spirits. In other cases, you would need a shaman in order to uh, contact probably the more powerful ones. That's what you typically see in uh, Native groups and First Nation groups in this area of North America. And just like their neighbors, when somebody died, their soul traveled far to the West to be in the village of the afterlife. The Jesuits describe a, a, a large ceremony that would happen once every couple of years because the Huron believed that the soul, or at least part of the soul, remained trapped in their bones. And so every couple of years, all the bones of their dead loved ones would be gathered. There'd be a large feast held, 
and the bones would be stripped of any sort of skin or flesh that was left on them, and they would be burned communally in a huge bonfire. And at that moment, everybody would be allowed to wail and cry hysterically, letting out all of their feelings, all of their sense of loss, all at once for the spirit and the bones to witness, and then those spirits move on. And the living Huron, too, having allowed themselves this cathartic experience of completely falling apart in front of this bonfire, would be more able to themselves move on in life. Back to the topic of language, like I mentioned, their language was Iroquoian in origin, very closely related to the languages of the Iroquois Confederation. In fact, in a previous episode, I mentioned that the trader Antony Bruel, who spoke Huron fluently, was actually tricked by a group of Seneca and ended up being captured by them because they were able to call out to him in Seneca and he mistook it for Huron. It was that close together. Just to give you one example from the Jesuit relations, the people of the Iroquois Confederacy, they refer to themselves as the Haudenosaunee, people of the Longhouse. Well, in the Jesuit relations 400 years ago, uh, they recorded the Huron word for the Haudenosaunee, and it was the Haudenosaunee. Pretty close. And so these two examples just go to show you that perhaps the languages weren't completely separate. Of course, each tribe in the Iroquois Confederacy technically were their own language, so Mohawk, Seneca, Onondaga. They were all separate languages. And the Huron, the same thing with all the tribes within there. But between them, they weren't that different, and they were probably mutually intelligible meaning that they were more like really deep accents from one another rather than completely separate languages. They were a farming people who lived in large communities, lived in longhouses where clans would reside, extended families, and palisades would surround those longhouses. Very similar to the Iroquois. Once again, I know I'm being repetitive. The Catholic father, Gabriel Sigard, he referred to Heronia country as well-cleared country, pretty unpleasant, and crossed by streams which empty into a great lake. Surprise, surprise. That Great Lake was Lake Huron. That's how it got its name. Basically parts of modern-day Ontario. In that position, they were perfect partners with the French. Because of their corn supply that they've had for centuries, they were already the uh, number one trading partner with many Algonquian groups to the north, who of course had the best furs because it's cold up there. And so the beaver were plentiful, it was a wide geographic spread, and they could trade corn for any amount of furs that the Algonquian people could get for them. Then, of course, they had their own supply of furs, which would eventually run out, because beaver do not procreate as much as rabbits. (laughs) Much like how the Innu tried to be the monopoly for the French supply of furs, uh, the French at this point had moved past them and had now made an alliance with the Huron. The Huron were far more equipped to manage this trade network, which had existed for several hundred years before the French got there, but traded in other goods. But the Huron now, in this central position, were able to take in furs from a huge swath of the continent and funnel it into New France. Now, the center of the Huron Confederation was actually four different peoples. The Bear People, the Deer People, the Cord People, and the Rock People. I won't dare try to pronounce the native name of it because I'll butcher it and then I'll get complaints. According to their own histories, the Huron Confederation started to coalesce around the 1420s. So way, way back before the French were there, and we have written records. So these, these are based on oral accounts. And the Bear people joined together in some sort of confederation with the Cord people. And that would be the nucleus of the confederation. By the 1560s, the Rock people had joined the confederation. And then by the 1570s, somewhere in there, maybe as late as the 1580s, the Deer people had joined. Now, if you remember our episodes on Jacques Cartier, around this same exact time, 
is when the St. Lawrence Iroquois disappear. Now, many historians believe that the deer people are actually a remnant of those St. Lawrence Iroquois, while other historians and archaeologists and anthropologists believe that the better part of the St. Lawrence Iroquois ended up down in the Iroquois Confederation. Either way, about the same time the St. Lawrence Iroquois disappear, the Huron Confederacy has taken on its final core member. The village of Asasazni was the host for the Grand Council of the Huron Confederacy, which consisted of a council of 52 members from the four nations. These would be peace chiefs, in uh, contrast to war chiefs, who of course would lead the war parties. In the 1620s, Father Gabriel Sagard estimated that the Huron Confederacy consisted of as many as 40,000 people which would put it on par or greater than the population of the Iroquois Confederacy. The same priest said that they were spread out in as many as 25 different villages. Now, before the Jesuits ended up in Huronia, the Recollets were already there, but they were largely unsuccessful in their efforts. They didn't like the conditions. They had a hard time learning the language. They didn't care for the Huron culture. So although they were there in 1615, it didn't really amount to much and wasn't nearly as documented as uh, what the Jesuits left for us to read today. Much like how clans in the Mohawk set up exclusive trading rights with the Dutch to the exclusion of the rest of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron families that set up the first trade relationships with the French were the exclusive owners of the trade between the two groups. It was through them that all the French goods would be distributed. Now, where the Jesuits really enter this story is when Champlain was restored to his position of power in and around 1632, 1633, their relationship with the Huron was renewed. And part of that renewal was a promise that the Huron would take on Jesuit missionaries. Coming into Huron country, they learned how to speak the Huron language from the traders who were already there. One of them being Antony Bruel, who would not be long for this earth at this point in our timeline. But Bruel epitomized everything the Jesuits didn't want in France to trickle into New France, and especially onto these native people who they considered blank slates for the, uh, the words of God. Bruel, already labeled a traitor by Champlain, was known among the Huron and the neighboring groups as just a lech. He just loved native women. He loved the freedoms they had, and he used those freedoms to his satisfaction. Now, the Jesuits abhorred this. The illustrious historian W.J. Eccles, he writes, From the outset, a main concern of the church was to forfend in New France the appalling religious condition that existed in 17th century France. And in the Jesuits' own words, Lejeune writes in the Jesuit relations, in the climate of New France, one learns perfectly to seek only God. However, these Jesuits, they weren't just holy men, and they weren't just thinking of things spiritual, although that was usually their primary concern. The French will be using the Jesuits for a century to come as diplomats, informants, and spies. And because they were so religious, they were particularly good at this role because they weren't motivated by money. They couldn't be uh, enticed by bribes from the English, let's say. They had a national and religious pride that held them to the French. And it is in this diplomat role that they were to go among the Huron. Of course, conversion was their primary concern, but the leadership in New France were more concerned about maintaining the Huron as a very close ally. And the Jesuits would be skilled at this, because in their conversion efforts around the world at this point, they learned to learn the native culture, learn the native language, infuse it with ideas of Jesus and Christianity and Catholicism, and just let it grow from there. Of course, the two cultures had some differences. They butt heads sometimes. Sometimes they find each other disgusting. If we remember uh, Samuel de Champlain, he spent a winter 
in Huron country, and he was disgusted by the women who would eat lice off their children, found it very animalistic, very barbaric. Likewise, when the Jesuits show up and they start using handkerchiefs, the Huron find that disgusting. You blow your nose into this piece of fabric, and then you just shove it into your pants. And so it wasn't a match made in heaven. There were differences there. Now the Jesuits in all of New France would be creating these publications called the Jesuit Relations, which are just wild depictions of everyday life in New France and the parts just outside of New France. Fascinating. They exist to this day. And in some cases, especially with the groups in this chunk of uh, North America, in some cases they provide just about the only primary source documents we have for certain groups who would be absorbed by other groups later on. And so they're invaluable. And just pick, there's, there's like 66 volumes or something, or 134 volumes. I don't even know. I can't even count them. But just pick anyone at random and start reading it. And it's, it's amazing. It's a diary of day-to-day life, which you do not often find in the 17th century. So when the Jesuits showed up in Huron country, one of the first things they wanted gone were these traders. They wanted these young Frenchmen out of here. Bad influence. Everything that was just the worst qualities of France, they were bringing into this virgin land, these virgin people who've never heard the word of God. And with them, they also wanted to stop the trade in brandy and other alcoholic spirits. They did not see that as a positive influence among the natives. In 1634, they established the St. Joseph Mission on the outskirts of Huronia. But in three short years, by 1637, they had a mission at Asasazni, the capital itself. But this, of course, came with waves of plagues, waves of infectious diseases coming from these Frenchmen now deep in Huron territory, mixing and mingling and talking to Huron people on a daily basis. Now, these sicknesses had two opposing effects. One effect was that it caused the Huron, who were sick, to by and large cling to the Jesuits and accept baptism, because in their culture, they saw baptism as a curing ceremony. It was similar in some ways to various ceremonies that shamans would perform to get rid of specific sicknesses. So initially, they thought they were getting lots of converts, but Father Brabeau quickly realized that these people were coming for reasons involving their own culture and not quite understanding what baptism was for. The historian Arthur Quinn says, Brabeau quickly realized that the role he and the other missionaries had to play was that of a shaman, much as a Jesuit became a court astrologer for the Chinese emperor. At this point, Brabeau starts to refuse baptism to those who are not fully inundated in the Catholic faith. But with that came a backlash, and some Huron began to believe that it was the presence of the Jesuits, and specifically the baptism ceremony that was spreading these sicknesses. Remember, we learned that the Huron believed in witches and shamans, and that sicknesses could be caused by curses by evil spirits communed by individuals sending bad stuff into the world. This, they believed, could possibly be one of those incidences. And so by 1637 or so, we see the emergence of two factions within the Huron, the pro-Catholic faction and the traditionalist faction, as historians have called it. Now, the Jesuits were really skilled at inserting a monotheistic religion into a polytheistic religion or an animist religion. Now, remember, in these religions, you believe in multiple spirits that control your life or multiple gods. Now, it's very easy to insert one more spirit or one more god, more so than it would be in the reverse. But, that, again, that faction of the Huron began to push back, and they would question the fathers. This quote is straight from the Jesuit relations from Father Brabeau, talking about the Hurons, of course. When we preach to them of one God, creator of heaven and earth, and all of the things, and even when we talk to them of hell and paradise, and of our other mysteries, 
the headstrong savages reply that this is good for our country and not for theirs. That every country has its own fashions. It's interesting to see here in the 17th century uh, the modern debate of moral relativism versus moral objectivism. These two factions would only widen throughout time. There were general councils held in 1637 and 1640 to determine whether or not to expel the Jesuits completely from Huronia. Some Huron began to refer to the Jesuits as birds of death because of their long black robes, wing-like in structure. They noted how the Jesuits sometimes got the same sicknesses as everybody else did in a general plague, but they recovered so much more easily, or they never got sick at all. This would be evidence to some of the Huron that the Jesuits were in fact conjuring these illnesses. But on the other side of things, all the Huron shamans were unable to get rid of these diseases and plagues. All of the normal spells they were able to cast, spirits they were able to call up, were ineffective. This began to sow distrust in the traditional institutions. Huron society was coming apart. And something that pushed people further away from the shamans, maybe not necessarily towards the Catholic missionaries, is that, as the historian Arthur Quinn says, the black robes did not make false promises to the Huron people, as did their own shamans. They would not promise rain when they knew its coming was not certain. And so, in the medium to long run, not giving out baptism as a curing ceremony every ten minutes only gave the Jesuits more credit. However, the Jesuits were sneaky. It is known that, since they were able to calculate when an eclipse would occur, that they used that to demonstrate their spiritual power at one point, creating an amazement among the Huron as the Jesuit fathers were able to accurately summon an eclipse. Also, it is known that Father Rabot, at least at one point, predicted or summoned the rain to fall. But this was only after he was certain that there was going to be rain anyway. So the Jesuits certainly were not perfect people. In fact, because of these plagues raging through Huronia, the Jesuits saw this as the work of the devil. And when somebody was near death, they would baptize them. And they would consider that a soul saved. And so, as more and more tragedies happened to the Huron people, the Jesuits developed this defense mechanism, or this coping mechanism, where they see the tragedy as an acceleration of souls getting to, into heaven. Kind of sick, if you think about it. By the mid to late 1630s, the Jesuits were taking young boys among the Huron, sending them back to Quebec, and then sometimes as far away as France to be educated. Their plan would be for these young men to come back all educated and enlightened, and then they would become the leaders of the Huron community. Of course, they discounted the respect that the Huron people paid to their elders. When these young men would come back, they would still be you know, slightly older men than when they left, and they would garner no more respect than anyone else their age. Closing in on the end of the decade of the 1630s, the Jesuits realized they had to ramp up the benefits that Christian Hurons would receive over the traditionalist Huron, and thus making the Christian Huron position the one everyone would want to be. To start any charity that was given out by the Jesuits, who the Huron would have recognized as a gift-giving gesture among their culture, the Jesuits were sure to mention that they were receiving these gifts of food or metal weapons because of the Christians in their community. And this created some uneasy level of toleration of Christian Hurons, because by this time the Hurons were dependent upon the French for metal goods. And some of their own native skills had begun to disappear. Basket making, uh, flint napping into arrowheads and uh, small knives. That was beginning to disappear because metal was so easily available from the French and so malleable and so useful. But with that added usefulness, 
and the extension of your leisure time came more dependence upon the French. It's because of this that the Jesuits were tolerated. The Jesuits would often argue that they were essential for the trade, but in reality, the trade is what made the Jesuits essential. If the Huron knew they could continue trading with New France without the Jesuits, they probably would have pursued that path. Now, around this time, the only Huron that were allowed to travel to the trading centers at Quebec, or Three Rivers, Trois-Rivières, however you say it, were Christian Huron. And so now it would be in the exclusive control of the Christian Huron to distribute all these useful and necessary and essential gifts among the Huron population. In the year 1638, Rabot would be replaced by Jérôme Lelemont, who was the brother of Charles Lelemont, I believe I'm saying his name right, a good friend of Champlain at Quebec, and the one who nursed him during his last few months of life. At the same time, the lieutenant governor of New France was sure to make yearly gifts to the Huron people. This would be a renewal of the treaty. Remember, when you have a culture that isn't literate, that have no culture of writing, no tradition of writing, treaties and agreements have to be renewed as the memory ages. So ideally, every year, there'd be some little gift to remind the other party of your agreement, and the French were sure to adhere to it. And again, overall, this raised the quality of life for the Huron, those of whom lived through the plagues. It's recorded that the Huron loved gifts of cats. They loved house cats. Because in the native world, cats were scary creatures that couldn't possibly be domesticated, often whose presence carried a supernatural connotation. And as I've mentioned, iron tools from the French made work faster, more efficient, took less energy, and gave the Huron more free time. With this leisure time, they were able to make more expressive artwork. We find that in the archaeology. Their houses became better made because they were able to fell huge trees with iron axes. However, archaeologists have noted while they were better made, they started to become shorter, which would indicate a change in the culture of the Huron. Now, extended clans lived in these longhouses. You might have a mother, and then in the next room over, inside of the same longhouse, you might have her sister, and on the other side, another sister, or a female cousin who would be in charge of a room to the far end. For some reason, these longhouses began getting shorter. Perhaps there was a weakening of the value of a clan over a nuclear family. The previously mentioned historian Eccles mentions about this time period concerning the Huron. Their standard of living indubitably rose, but they had to pay an exorbitant price. Part of the price was the destruction of their old cultural, social, and spiritual values. And if we average together just about every estimate, over the course of that decade, 1630 to 1640, the Huron population was just about cut in half, the plagues being a huge part of that. As you can imagine, the Jesuits must have felt some threat coming from this traditionalist faction who are seeing their numbers dwindle and their culture being worn away slowly. Although there are no recorded vengeance killings of Frenchmen during this period, but there was a sense of danger, and talk was beginning to brew among the Huron, and the Jesuits were picking up on that. Father Lejeune recorded in the Jesuit relations concerning their experience among the Huron. Our lives depend upon a single thread, and if it were ever in this world, we were to expect death every hour, and to be prepared for it, that is particularly the case here. For not only to mention that your cabin is only, as it were, chaff, and it might be burned at any moment. Despite all your care to prevent accidents, the malice of the savages 
gives a special cause for almost perpetual fear. A malcontent may burn you down or cleave your head open in some lonely spot, and then you are responsible for the sterility or fecundity of the earth. Under penalty of your life, you are the cause of droughts. If you cannot make rain, they speak of nothing less than making away with you. It would be no coincidence that closing out this decade, St. Marie was finally built. The Jesuit settlement that had palisades and stone bastions. This would be a haven for the Jesuits and the converted Huron, who were increasingly ostracized. In 1640, Brebeau was poisoned by Huron shamans, and he recovered. Brebeuf went to live among the neutrals at one point to escape the Hurons, and the Hurons convinced the neutrals that he was no good, and he was cast out of that country. Why this didn't spill over and just become a general massacre of Huron Christians and the Jesuits, Pierre Lelemont, the uh, father who wrote the 1640 Jesuit relations, or parts of it, said the following, The reputation of Champlain, who had stayed there some 22 years ago, still lives among the minds of those barbarous people, who honor, even after the lapse of so many years, the many lovable virtues that they admired in him, and particularly his chastity and continence. Would God that all the French who were to come first into these regions had been like him. Despite their interactions with the Jesuits, the French were great trading partners. They were loyal, they were consistent, going back decades at this point, thanks to Samuel de Champlain. However, one neighbor that wasn't so friendly were the neutrals once again. The neutrals and other Iroquoian people between the years 1640 and 43 waged war against the Huron Confederation. And they took as many as a thousand of the Huron captive. That would be out of a population that at most was 25,000. This would lead the Jesuits by 1642 to start selling guns to the Huron, but just to the Christian Huron. Again, they were willing to help protect the Confederacy, but only if that meant the propagation of their Catholic faith. The stress of this prolonged war and then the different treatment that the Huron Christians received finally created a, a definite rift during this period, 1640, right into 46 or so. Christian Huron would stop participating in traditional ceremonies, ceremonies that were supposed to bring the rain and the good harvest and good luck and keep the enemies away and embolden a war party with positive spirits behind them. The Christian Huron were no longer participating in that. Of course, the traditionalist Huron would see that as weakening uh, their spiritual power, weakening the confederation as a whole because they are no longer conjuring the spirits onto their side. They stopped participating in the gift-giving culture. And between these two things, uh, Huron Christians, in the traditionalist eyes, appeared more like witches. They had their own spirits, and they had their own goals that did not overlap with that of the traditionalist Huron. And with that, the Jesuits would only ramp up the favors given onto the Christian population of the Huron. Eventually, the non-Christian Huron were not allowed inside of the French section of the St. Marie mission, or any of the other missions for that matter. The Jesuits began slowly segregating them. The traditionalist Huron, uh, likewise, would cast out Christian Huron from their own families. Specifically, Christian men were often expelled from the longhouse of their mother or their wife. You won't participate in our ceremonies. You won't appease the spirits that we need to appease. You're gone. This was particularly important for chiefs because chiefs were to lead a lot of these different ceremonies throughout the year, whether it be inside of your clan, your tribe, or as a formal uh, ceremony of the Grand Council of the entire Confederation. Either way, 
if you were a Christian chief and refused to perform any of these ceremonies or participate in these dances, could you really still be a chief? And now the Huron as a whole decided that maybe these chiefs that are converting to Christianity shouldn't be chiefs anymore. This is when the Jesuits stepped in and they negotiated so that the Christian chiefs could remain in power, but all of these spiritual functions could be undertaken by an assistant of theirs. And although I think I already mentioned that the shamans, of course, were the most opposed to the Jesuits, but at this time it had thoroughly leaked into society. It became a hot-button topic, I guess you could say. Because even onto the afterlife, this would be an issue. Like I mentioned before, the Huron believed each group of people had their own customs and their own beliefs, and this extended to the afterlife. The Huron believed that there was a Huron afterlife, and the afterlife that the Catholics, uh, through the Jesuits were explaining, didn't quite line up with theirs. Now, for them, it wasn't the fact that the Catholic heaven existed and theirs didn't. It was that there were two different heavens, and you were bound to go to one, and the two had no overlap whatsoever. And so imagine yourself a traditional Huron woman living in a longhouse, and your son converts to Catholicism. Now, you believe that he will be going to an afterlife, hopefully a happy afterlife, but it will be a Catholic heaven. It will not be uh, the village of the afterlife that you will be going to. And so as long as you two are alive, you'll have contact with one another. But once you're dead, it's an eternity apart. You can see how this would just destroy people, uh, the thought of never seeing their loved one ever again. What this led to was people having to choose sides. Now, again, imagine you're that mother and you would really like to spend eternity with your son. Well, guess what? Now you're converting to Catholicism. And of course, the reverse was also true. Let's say you converted to Catholicism and your son stayed a traditionalist and you couldn't convince him to come over to the side of the Jesuits. Well, when push comes to shove, you might just convert back so that you could be assured that you'd be in the same heaven as your son. This division got so bad that even in the midst of a war with the neutrals, the Catholic Huron were slowly beginning to fight in their own little regiments, I guess you could call it, war parties. They were refusing to fight with the traditionalists and were separating themselves, even on the warfare, even, even, even in defending their own villages. So what held all this together still? Why hasn't this broken apart at the seams? Well, again, it was that trade relationship. The Christian Huron were the ones who were able to bring the supplies from New France. And so you still needed them even if they were pulling away from you culturally. Right around 1643, as the neutral wars were winding down, 1644 into 1645, the rumors begin of the Iroquois, the Haudenosaunee. Unlike the Huron, the Iroquois were getting tons of guns, this time from the Dutch, who at times were not legally allowed to sell the Iroquois guns, but it was happening anyway. And so the Iroquois had many, many more guns than the Huron. And for all points, West of the Iroquois Confederation, they were being introduced to the Beaver Wars, otherwise known as the Morning Wars, where the Iroquois were rapidly spreading outward to combat the loss of life that they were experiencing through plagues, replacing the members of their community with captives, and obtaining exclusivity to different fur trading routes. Now the Huron were the ripest of targets for all of these aims. First of all, culturally, linguistically, everything else-ily, very close to the Iroquois, right? Perfect captives. They would blend in perfectly. They're part of a confederation. They speak a very similar language. All their myths and legends, very similar. It'd be as if I today 
went to Ontario and took a random person from Ontario and dropped them down in New York. They'd probably do pretty good. And secondly, the Huron were the spider in the web that was the beaver trade at the time. They were able to funnel all these deep connections deep into the North American continent through their country and to the French. Now, if the Iroquois could take over that, they would be able to control all the trade. They would have a monopoly on the trade uh, to the French, with the exception of their very local neighbors who had very few furs by this point in time. Then they would also be able to control the trade to the Dutch at this time on the Hudson at Fort Orange, New Netherland. I did the whole first season on the Iroquois New Netherland. Check it out. And so just as the one war was starting to wear down, the Iroquois were coming. In fact, in the winter of 1644-45, French soldiers were actually brought from Quebec and stationed in Huronia. We had reached a tipping point where the Huron people weren't quite feeling safe even in their own country, their own villages. And still the Jesuits kept the pressure on to convert to Catholicism. The favors that would be bestowed upon you were still very great. Rolling into 1645, it is recorded that the traditionalist women among the Huron made it a practice to seduce Christian men back to their old ways. And this may have been the last-ditch effort to hold everything together, because it appears by the year 1646 there is a definite canyon between the two different types of Huron. Baptisms are exploding among St. Marie, where the Jesuits live, at least the head Jesuits in Huronia. Meanwhile, the traditionalist Huron were actually being enticed by the Iroquois. Again, very similar culture. And up to this point, the Iroquois are only torturing and murdering Jesuit priests. And so a union between, let's say, the Seneca and a couple clans of the Huron would actually be more advantageous for preserving their way of life. And then on the flip side of things, that only encouraged the Iroquois to more and more push into Huron country. Not only were they vulnerable, but there was a segment of their population that saw the Haudenosaunee as the lesser of two evils. In fact, in 1647, the Huron capture an all-Iroquois war party. They spare only one of them, who happened to be an Onondaga chief, very important fellow. The traditionalist Huron, they tasked the chief with going back to his country and negotiating a peace. Now, this chief did open up negotiations, and the Onondaga requested the Huron send a party of peace to them to do that. Now, if you remember, in the Iroquois Confederation, each individual tribe can make war or peace against outsiders as they wish. They still had that autonomy. Now, the Huron feared the Seneca Nation more than any other native nation around them. The Senecas, of course, were the westernmost door of the Great Longhouse. And so the party that was to go to Onondaga, they very skillfully tried to avoid the Seneca. However, they ran into a Mohawk raiding party who butchered all of them, ending the peace negotiations. This was part of a larger plot by the traditional Huron to open up peace with the Iroquois, start trading with the Dutch, and expel the Jesuits. However, it was killed by the Iroquois themselves. This would follow heavy waves of Iroquois invasions. The rest of 1647 was just a bloodbath for the Huron. All the border villages were just destroyed, mowed over by Iroquois braves, forcing by fall Saint-Marie to host 3,000 Huron refugees out of a dwindling population that would have been at most 20,000. Furthermore, the warfare style of the Haudenosaunee had evolved by this point. They learned to set up long trails of networks and supplies. It wasn't just you go and raid and then you come home. There were supplies behind you, people bringing things up. 
uh, little forts you could go back to in case you needed to for uh, recovery or, again, to find something to eat. And so an unprecedented thing happened, and that was that an Iroquois force of 1,200 warriors camped out all winter in Huron country, well past the normal warring season. But they didn't just stay on the easternmost side of Huron country. They went west and they went north, and they cut off all the networks of trade from their Algonquian allies, meaning that Huronia received no pelts in the year 1648. As you can imagine, this would also bode very badly for New France in the St. Lawrence, who depended primarily on the furs coming in from Huronia. This new type of incessant warfare was too much for the Huron to bear. Over the next 18 months to two years, the Huron didn't feel safe outside of their palisades, because in their fields working, growing their corn that was essential to their living and their trade, the Iroquois would raid, and they would take out one or two individuals at a time. The Iroquois could afford to play the waiting game, and the Huron would develop a deep sense of insecurity. And so slowly the Iroquois would wear away at each individual village until it was ripe for an attack. One village in particular, 1648, the Iroquois attack one Huron village, and 700 people are lost, either captured or dead, which by this time may have been as great as 10% of the Huron population, quickly eroding from 40,000 or so in 1620 down to less than 10,000 before the year 1650. At a certain point, it became clear that the Jesuits need to bring more guns to Huronia and need to hand them out uh, with a little less distinction. But it was too little too late. The Dutch had already well supplied the Iroquois. The Huron had, at most, around 1648, 120 guns, something like that. The Iroquois had many times that amount, and the guns were better because the Iroquois were astute buyers from the Dutch, and they knew quality. And by this time, they had been shooting guns for at least 10 years or so. At one point, the traditionalist Huron in 1648 sent six of their warriors to St. Marie to kill all of the Jesuits and any French men or boys that would be there. They went there and killed at least one man. They demanded that the Jesuits leave, along with any Christian Huron that would not convert back. Ultimately, they were fought back, and restitution was given to them by the traditionalist Huron. This probably would have been the outbreak of a civil war among the Huron, had not the Iroquois been pressing on them so heavily. And unknown to the traditionalist Huron, many of the French had already left Huronia, and were back in New France. They were back in the St. Lawrence, not running away, but trying to organize more help for the Huron people. Ah, but the sturdy Jesuits, their literal glutton for punishments. Uh, To suffer in life is to be Christ-like, they believed. And so many of them weren't going anywhere. July 4th, 1648, the village of St. Joseph is attacked. Father Daniel is holding a service, and he only realizes that the invasion is happening when he sees the Iroquois pouring over the palisade walls. At that moment, he knew his martyrdom was coming. And so he picked up the chapel cross and marched straight into the melee, only to be killed by many arrows to the body. The historian Eccles says of this period, Although the Huron warriors still greatly outnumbered the Iroquois invaders, their will to resist was broken. The Iroquois could sense this, and it was time to put out a little carrot for all the stick they were doing. And they let it be known that if you were captured, you could join your previously captured family in the Iroquois Confederation. Imagine how that offer would weigh on a traditionalist Huron, where at this point there was no living life as you were inside of the Huron Confederation. You were either going to be pushed 
towards the Catholic end, the Jesuits, or you were going to have to go with the Iroquois, where you could have your family back, where you could have your way of life back, where you could have your religion back, where you could have your afterlife with your family. And this is that loss of will that Eccles was talking about. Why fight this? And so by the tail end of 1648-49, the Huron Confederacy is collapsing rapidly. The Jesuits step in and they're going to try to put everything back together. Some of the few villages remaining are over 50% Catholic now. The Jesuits suggested at this point that their traditional chief systems and councils and consensus systems be abandoned and that each village allow the Jesuit priest to be the leader of that community. Similarly, they achieved some amount of power on the actual Huron Council, the Grand Council, and they suggested their consensus system be abandoned. That is the system where I say one thing, you say another thing, and then we go back and forth until we've reached some sort of agreement or consensus. They say, let's abandon that and just go with a Western Democratic-style popular vote. This would make things go a lot faster. And what they needed right now was speed. They also wanted to hem in individual warriors' ability to fight or not fight. They had the freedom of conscience. They tried to get the Huron uh, Grand Council to have a little more force, a little more authority. Authority it never really had, because the Huron, just like the Haudenosaunee, enjoyed a huge amount of personal freedom. Of course, with the pressure from the Iroquois, every other faction of Huron that didn't want to go over to them leaned more and more heavily on the Jesuits and their New France connection. Father Lelemont saw all this falling apart, and he suggested that the Huron be resettled at a certain point and start living like Europeans. But 1649 would prove to be the year that all hell broke loose. The Iroquois maintained this practice of staying in Huron country long after their raid. They would take out an entire village, reduce the population to about 10 people that they could use as servants, and then use that former Huron village as their staging base for their next raid on their next village. One by one, in very short succession, the Huron villages fall. There's slaughter, there's torture, and there's captives taken. As the noose is tightening, St. Marie is built up as much as it can be. The wood replaces them with as much stone as they could possibly find. Tightening the noose further, St. Ignace and St. Louis is destroyed. Both missions in Huron country centered around a village. Fathers Lelemont and Brebeuf were both taken captive. Now up until this point, the Jesuit fathers could always console themselves with the death of the Huron, knowing that they had been baptized and thus saved and quickly dispatched to heaven. However, now it was their time to be Christ-like, to feel the tortures of life, and to be martyred. In captivity, Brebeau watched as the Iroquois cooked hatchets until they were red hot, and then they were placed around his neck. Boiling water was poured on his head, to mock the baptism. His skin was then flayed from his body, and he was forced to watch as the Iroquois ate pieces of him. Then, while still living, he was scalped. Finally, his chest was ripped open. The Iroquois drank his blood, and then they tore out his heart, and they ate it for being so brave. They considered him a brave man because it took four hours for him to die from these tortures, all the while asking God to forgive these Iroquois. Father Lelemont was tortured for 11 hours. And although I don't have the details, you can imagine what the Iroquois managed to do in four, what they could have done in 11. Again, that noose tightening as the year 1649 wore on. The only Huron settlement left 
was the settlement around St. Marie. And at one point in the year, 6,000 Hurons sought refuge there. That would be the entirety of the Huron nation left uncaptive of the Iroquois. And now for the time and place, this was a massive number of people. They were able to defend that one settlement. Of course, they'll never be able to plant corn. They'll never be able to carry on the fur trade there. This wouldn't be a permanent solution. But they were alive, and they were able to defend St. Marie from the attacks. That didn't stop the Iroquois from burning captives from other villages alive right in front of them. Come wintertime, the Huron hoped that the Iroquois would return home, but they didn't. Again, they stayed in the country. The small number of Huron warriors left. They engaged the Iroquois in their winter camp and managed to have a win. They won one. They got one in the bag, and they chased the Iroquois back to the territory of their own confederacy. At this point, St. Marie is purposefully destroyed. Everything is burnt or thrown over. The fathers begin relocating families, which was not very easily done. So in many cases, clans and subdivisions of tribes were forced to go their own separate ways. And with this, the Huron Confederation was effectively ended, destroyed. Still, St. Marie was a target. And 6,000 people is an awful lot of people to relocate. Eventually, the Iroquois return. There's a three-day battle. At the end of the day, 300 Huron are massacred. And the entire settlement is overrun. Many of the remaining Christian Huron decided to settle on Christian Island, as it was known after this point in time. The Jesuits wanted them to settle further north, further away from the Iroquois. But they thought they would be safe here. This would be their refugee camp of sorts. It had 100 cabins that the Huron could stay in, and this led to a mass conversion just to get onto the island, which very quickly became overwhelmed with Huron, overpopulated, causing mass starvation. Food being so short, the Jesuits decided who would be fed and who would not be fed, and they saw the suffering again as an act of preparation for heaven, a Christ-like move, although they themselves had their own store of food that they would eat from as they watched the Huron starved to death. This many people on an isolated little island with very little supply coming from Quebec, cut off by the Iroquois, of course, led to cannibalism. And in the night, any Iroquois sympathizers or the few who could be convinced at the sight of cannibalism that maybe their life with the Iroquois would be better than this, sneak away across the waters and they join the Iroquois, either to be adopted or tortured to death. At one point, the Jesuits take the 300 Huron, uh, who are the most devout Christians on the island, and they relocate them to Quebec. And there are 300 more left on the island to reap the few crops that were allowed to grow. And then they, too, joined the Jesuits in Quebec. 600 total. Remember, the Huron had 6,000 the year before at St. Marie. What happened to all the Huron? Well, there were all the diseases in the decades coming up to this point. Many went to the Iroquois. Some ended up with the French. Some joined the neutral nation, very similar, another Iroquoian people. In fact, the entire deer nation of the Huron joined the neutral nation. And then the neutrals, soon thereafter, were taken over by the Iroquois, most of them becoming Seneca. In fact, all the Iroquoian people in the Great Lakes region were attacked and absorbed by the Iroquois. The Huron and others were pushed to the far fringes of the North American continent beyond the Iroquois reach, either to the north, deep in Ohio country where the Iroquois weren't quite yet, or up inside of New France. The historian Thomas B. Costain says of Heronia, For 22 years the missionaries had labored among them, and now not a single living soul 
was left in all of that once beautiful land. Ah, but the Iroquois, they would chase them as far as they could. And even into New France, where the Huron were resettled. They would petition French authorities, saying, hey, we can, we can open up a peace agreement, we can open up trade, just send some of those Huron down to us. We would like to make them some of our people. Occasionally this worked out for the better of the Huron. However, in one case, the French authorities encouraged the Huron to join the Iroquois in peace. This is skipping all the way to the year 1657. So there had been five and a half, six years of relative quiet. This group would be about 400 Huron total. They go down into the Iroquois Confederation, and they're all slaughtered except for one of them. In 1657, the Mohawk attacked the Huron, who were living on the island of Orleans. Governor Jean de Lisson, he witnessed the entire thing happen, helplessly, as the Iroquois and the French were at a peace with one another, the Huron not part of the arrangement. In fact, he was able to stand in the citadel of St. Louis and watch as the Iroquois and their canoes took their captives back to their confederacy. So you might say to yourself now at this point, after this horribly tragic story, how can the Wendat Confederacy, which was effectively dissolved 1649-1650, how can it have very much of an effect on our history today, or even the last 300 years or so? Well, let's go group by group. First of all, it inundated the Iroquois with a huge boost in their population. Um, some observers would report around this period that entire villages were made out of captives, many of them Huron. And those Huron brought into the Iroquois sphere the Catholic religion, which up to this point, the Iroquois had been very good at staving off. But now they had invited it into their very heart. And that same division that started in the Huron Confederation would now be found in the Iroquois Confederation. The effects of that are still felt today in the placements of uh, the different Iroquois nations. And we'll get to that in a very future episode. Also, the Jesuits, they followed the refugees far to the west. And so now where the Jesuits were only going as far as Lake Huron, now they're going past the Great Lakes. They're ending up in areas we would call Wisconsin now, in parts north far up on the Canadian Shield. For their part, the historian Bruce Trigger says, the Jesuits deserve credit for their humane intentions and respect for cultural differences that are unique in the annals of the 17th century missionary endeavors. I guess this could be true. They weren't perfect. At times they were awfully pushy. But they certainly aren't the evil priests we often see depicted in media uh, leading massacres of natives who won't convert. But all this effort looking after the remaining Huron broke the Jesuit monopoly that they had over the spiritual life of New France. And in 1656, this Sulpician order is requested to come to New France to relieve the Jesuits of some of their responsibilities. But let's turn back to the tale of the Wendat people and their legacy and where they are today and what they're up to and who are their descendants. Like the Wendat, all of these other Iroquoian people are either absorbed by the Iroquois or scattered. So we have the Erie, the Neutrals, you have the Cat Nation, the Tobacco Nation, and you have the Huron and all the nations in that confederation. Time and situation has obscured the, the subtle differences between those groups. And eventually all of these non-Iroquois confederation Iroquois <laughs> fall under this term Wendat. We see in the sources they are referred to as Huron sometimes, Wendat sometimes, and then different variations of W-sounding names. To be frank, the Wendat Confederation was the end of the Wendat. However, that label became a bit of an ethnicity 
and it applied to a swath of different interrelated peoples, peoples who may or may not have had any sort of genetic relation to the people in the Wendat Confederation. I know it gets confusing, but fast forward to today and you will find nations that use the term Wendat. You also find nations that use the term Wyandot. Now native groups today make it very clear that they are not the Wendat Confederation of 400 years ago. They are a related group. Perhaps some ancestry comes down from them, but they are a wholly distinct uh, ethnic and political entity onto themselves that might have a heritage connected to this previous political entity. It's a lot like an Italian person today. You wouldn't exactly call him Roman. In the same sense, a lot of people need to realize that Native Americans change also. They're allowed to develop and create new political and ethnic identities as time goes on. They aren't stuck in a glass like a thing at a museum. Just in the few decades after the dispersal of their confederacy, they would become fierce allies of the French and fierce fighters against the Iroquois. Offshoots of the Wendat people would become founding members of new native confederacies that would last for decades and centuries to come. And in fact, four of these nations, spread between the United States and Canada, came together in 1999 to officially reform the Wendat Confederation. This is a people who had everything working against them. Every single force trying to push them into obscurity, cause them to assimilate into other native groups, into French groups. And yet they're still here, they still persist, and they're going strong. And that's why I featured them on the Other States of America History Podcast. I'm Eric Giannis. Thank you for listening.